So we're starting a series today on Hebrews. And so if you have your Bibles, open it to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. And we are going to worship and exalt and praise Jesus Christ, who we just sang about, who has taken away our sins. Let's once again put our hands together and praise Jesus, who's taken away our sins. How would you counsel somebody who they, they, they didn't have really the, the desire to pray any longer because it felt like they were, they, they just felt like they were, they were immersed in quicksand of guilt and regret and remorse because they were so focused on their past sins? What, what would you say to them to help, help pull them out of that? Or what would you say to somebody who you knew at one time in their life was passionate about Jesus Christ, but it seemed like their, their fuel, their, their, their passion for the Lord had, had lost its zeal, its energy? How, how would you counsel them to be refreshed and to be resuscitated? What, what would you say to somebody who was counting the cost and they were following Christ, but they were being met with such opposition that they just didn't know if it was really worth it any longer, and so they were just going to look like every other Christian in Fort Worth, which isn't a bad person, they were just passive, they weren't passionate. What would you say to somebody who was pa- just simply passive? And it's like they, they, they were just so focused on good things in life. There's not anything wrong with them, just good things, but they're not the better things. Temporal things, but not eternal things. How, how would you encourage them? How would you motivate them to live for eternal matters? What would you say to somebody whose love had grown cold towards Christ, towards the local church, towards a lost and dying world, what would you say to them? How, how would you encourage them to, to, to love again and pursue Christ again? What would you say to Christians like that? Maybe, maybe you are one of those Christians. Well, that's the subject matter of the entire book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was written to a sincere group of believers— They weren't merely professors of Christ. They were truly believers in Jesus Christ. But they were second-generation believers, meaning uh, the, the people who led them to Christ, their mentors, their pastors, their teachers, their, their parents, their grandparents are the ones who knew Jesus Christ personally when he walked the earth. Well, they had died off by now. Many had been martyred. And their faith was growing cold. Their passion was... Uh, slipping back into being passive. They were looking around at the rules and the regulations and the synagogues and the customs that, that they were delivered from to walk in freedom in Christ, and they were starting to kind of slide back into that. They, they, they weren't even assembling really regularly once a week any longer. I mean, they, they were just getting passive Many of them were slipping back into the world altogether, and you couldn't even really tell the difference between these believers and non-believers. They may have professed Christ when they assembled every now and then with the other believers, but they were practical atheists throughout the week. And so, the author of Hebrews addresses this group of Christians. And I say the author of Hebrews because we don't know who wrote it. Many people say Paul. No, nobody really knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. 
But the letter of Hebrews is written to those saints. And the central theme throughout the book of Hebrews, especially chapter 1 that we're going to look at today, is the infinite supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things. The infinite supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things so that the things of this world loses its luster, it loses its appeal, and people are, are able to break free and pursue Christ with complete passion. The essence of the book of Hebrews, especially chapter 1, is the utter preeminence of Christ. The utter worthiness of Christ to worship him. The worthiness of Jesus Christ to passionately pursue him. The worthiness of Jesus Christ to live for him. The worthiness of Jesus Christ to absolutely surrender to him. The worthiness of Jesus Christ to live in complete obedience to him. So that if today, if in that day or if today, our heart has grown cold, our passion has become passive, uh, this world has, has developed an allure to us, perhaps it's not that we simply have a self-discipline issue, we have a severe doctrinal issue, and we have forgotten about the utter supremacy of Jesus Christ. Which is why in the book of Hebrews, uh, a few words are used repetitively. One word, for example, is better. Uh, The word better is used 13 times throughout the book of Hebrews. Jesus Christ is better than the world. Jesus Christ is better than, superior than the angels. Jesus Christ is better. He is superior than the Levitical priesthood. He is better. He is is superior than the Mosaic law, the moral law. He is better. He is superior. Don't go back. Jesus Christ is infinitely superior. The word perfect is used 14 times. The word perfect is used because Jesus Christ is perfect because he makes us perfect. The Levitical priesthood, the the, the blood animal sacrifices, the, the Mosaic law were not perfect because they lacked the capacity to make us perfect. But Jesus Christ is not only better than, he is perfect because he makes us perfect. The word eternal or some variation thereof, forever, eternal, is used throughout the book of Hebrews because Jesus is better than. He is eternal. He makes us perfect forever. So I wonder if perhaps in your personal life throughout the week, maybe you profess Christ on Sunday, you're a practical atheist throughout the week, this world has an allure, you're passive when it comes to the body of Christ, your heart has grown cold to a lost and broken world, your consuming desire is not to worship Jesus Christ, not because you have a self-discipline issue, but rather you have a severe doctrinal issue and you have forgotten the supremacy of Christ. Who is better than perfect, eternal? And that's the subject of Hebrews chapter 1. And we're beginning this series 
on the book of Hebrews this morning. I'm glad you're here. Stick with us throughout this entire series. Uh, you will grow so much doctrinally. You'll grow much, so much theologically. You'll grow so in love with Christ as you realize his supremacy, but also his utter humility so that he would uh, not only fling the cosmos into infinite space and hold them all together by the sheer power of his word, but he would also live among us and shed his blood for us because he would rather go through the cross for us than to live in heaven without us and you will fall in love with Jesus Christ all over again and my desire is that throughout this series in the book of Hebrews you will develop an utter love and loyalty and passion to worship and to live for Jesus Christ so let's look at Hebrews chapter 1 as we talk about the utter, infinite supremacy of Jesus Christ. Who is this Jesus? I, before, right before service started, I, I met a, a, a Messianic Jewish brother, a, a Christian who was from the, the Jewish faith and uh, who is here. And so my first question was, I said, it's great to meet you. So how do you say Jesus in Hebrew? It's Yeshua. Who is this Yeshua? Or as we know from the Greek, Jesus. Who is Yeshua? Who was of all things born in a barn, lived amongst a poor family, a carpenter by trade who chose to be homeless, who died a tragic death, very few followers at the time of his death, who was laid to rest in a pauper's tomb, a borrowed tomb, and yet... He split time in half, B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Who is this Yeshua who split time in half? Who is this Yeshua who never wrote a single book in the 33 years that he lived in first century Palestine, and yet more books have been written about him than any other religious leader, political leader, philosophical leader, scientific leader? Religious leaders that combined throughout the course of history. More books have been written about Christ than the libraries in the entire world can contain. Who is this Yeshua? Who never left a geographical area larger than the size of America's smallest state, Rhode Island? And yet today, 2,000 years later, a third of the world's population, 3 billion people, worship the name of Christ? Who is this Yeshua who never had a formal education, who never had a degree, and yet today more hospitals, more orphanages, more universities have been named after Christ than any other person combined throughout all of history? Who is this Yeshua who never led an army and yet millions and millions have willingly died for his name? Who is this Yeshua, this Jesus from Nazareth? Well, in Hebrews chapter 1, we see three characteristics about Jesus. The first thing that we see about Jesus is this. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He is God's Son. We read in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, God the Father said about the Son, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, in whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. 
Later in Jesus' ministry, Jesus, Peter, James, and John went up on a mountain, and for a moment, the temporal was pulled back, and Jesus shed his earth suit, and Peter, James, and John saw the transfigured Jesus in all of his glory, and the Father said, this is my son, once again, whom I loved. With him, I am well pleased, and then watch what he said after that, listen to him, Jesus is the Son of God. Did you know that? Jesus is the Son of God. Now, it's not that that Jesus one day became the Son of God. Understand this. Jesus didn't one day become the Son of God. Jesus has always been the Son of God. And the Father has always been God the Father. Jesus didn't become the Son of God when he was born in that manger 2,000 years ago. They said to Jesus, who are you? And Jesus said, I'll tell you the truth. Before Abraham was, I am. We see that Jesus was present at creation. Uh, He was slain before the foundation of the earth. Jesus has always been. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Wrap your mind around this. Jesus Christ has no beginning. He's always been, and he will always be. This is a handful of things that we know about the Son of God, Jesus Christ, from the book of Hebrews. One, we see that Jesus, the Son, is God's Word. Watch this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 2. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. All throughout Old Testament, prophets would stand up and with incredible authority, their voices would rise, and they would say, thus saith the Lord, but Jesus came. And he didn't say, thus saith the Lord. He said, I say unto you, because Jesus is the word of God. In fact, Jesus is written throughout the pages of Scripture, Genesis through Revelation. If you don't see Jesus, then you've missed the entire thing. In the book of Genesis, Jesus is the creator. In Exodus, Jesus is the redeemer. In Leviticus, Yeshua is your sanctification. And as we go through this series throughout the book of Hebrews, I want to encourage you, read the book of Hebrews. Next Sunday, we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 2. But not only that... Also, read the third book of the Bible in in the Pentateuch, uh, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Read the book of Leviticus. Sometimes we say about Leviticus, we kind of make fun of it like it's a dry book. It is incredibly rich, especially when we read the book of Leviticus in connection, in corroboration with the New Testament book of Hebrews. In fact, to have a real understanding of the book of Hebrews, you really need to read the book of Leviticus. And the book of Leviticus, granted, it makes no sense apart from Christ, none whatsoever. So be reading through the book of Leviticus as we also read through the book of Hebrews. In Leviticus, Jesus is your sanctification. In Numbers, he is your guide. In Deuteronomy, Jesus is your teacher. In Joshua, he is the mighty conqueror. In Judges, he gives victory over enemies. In Ruth, he is your kinsman. 
your lover, your redeemer. In 1 Samuel, he is the root of Jesse. In 2 Samuel, he is the son of David. In 1 and 2 Kings, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. In 1 and 2 Chronicles, he is your intercessor and high priest. In Ezra, he is your temple, your house of worship. In Nehemiah, Yeshua is your mighty wall, protecting you from your enemies. In Esther, he stands in the gap to deliver you from your enemies. In Job, he is the arbitrator who not only understands your struggles, but has the power to do something about them. In Psalms, Jesus is your song and your reason to sing. In Proverbs, he is your wisdom, helping you make sense of life and live it successfully. In Ecclesiastes, Jesus is your purpose, delivering you from vanity. In the Song of Solomon, he is your lover, your rose of Sharon. In Isaiah, Jesus is the mighty counselor, the prince of peace, the everlasting father, and more. He's everything you need. In Jeremiah, Jesus is the balm of Gilead, the soothing psalm of your sin-sick soul. In Lamentations, Jesus is the ever-faithful one upon whom you can depend. In Ezekiel, Jesus is the wheel in the middle of a wheel, the one who assures that dry, dead bones will come to life again. In Daniel, Jesus is the ancient of days, the everlasting God who never runs out of time. In Hosea, Jesus is your faithful lover, always beckoning you to come back even when you have abandoned him. In Joel, Yeshua is your refuge, keeping you safe in times of trouble. In Amos, Jesus is the husbandman, the one you can depend on to stay by your side. In Obadiah, Jesus is the Lord of the kingdom. In Jonah, he is your salvation, bringing you back within his will. In Micah, he is the judge of the nation. In Nahum, he is the jealous God. In Habakkuk, Jesus is the holy one. In Zephaniah, Yeshua is the witness. In Haggai, he overthrows the enemies. In Zechariah, he is the Lord of hosts. In Malachi, he is the messenger of the covenant. And in the New Testament, in Matthew, he is the king of the Jews. In Mark, he is the servant. In Luke, he is the son of man, feeling what you feel. In John, he is the son of God. In Acts, Jesus is the savior of the world. In Romans, he is the righteousness of God. In 1 Corinthians, he is the rock that followed Israel. In 2 Corinthians, he is the triumphant one, giving victory. In Galatians, he is your liberty. He sets you free. In Ephesians, Jesus is the head of the church. In Philippians, he is your joy. In Colossians, he is your completeness. In 1 Thessalonians, he is your hope. In 2 Thessalonians, Jesus is your glory. In 1 Timothy, he is your faith. In 2 Timothy, he is your stability. In Titus, he is your reason for serving. In Philemon, he is your benefactor. In Hebrews, he is your perfection. In James, he is the power beyond your faith. In 1 Peter, he is your example. In 2 Peter, he is your purity. In 1 John, he is your life. In 2 John, he is your pattern for living. In 3 John, he is your motivation. In Jude, he is the foundation of your faith. And in Revelation, Yeshua is the soon coming king. Let's praise him. The sun is God's word. Secondly, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. We read in Hebrews 1, 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. 
and the exact representation of his, of his being. Wow, this is Jesus. In John chapter 14, Philip said, Jesus, when are you going to show us the Father? And Jesus looked at him, and he said, Philip, have I been with you this long, and you don't recognize me? Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. What is God like? Look at Jesus. Jesus is the visible representation of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like? What is the creator of the, the, creator of the cosmos like? Look at Jesus. And you see he's got a tender heart. He, his heart breaks for the brokenhearted. He is approachable. He says, let all the little children come to me. He sharply rebukes people who abuse their positions of authority. He has an utter passion to heal and to restore and to make whole. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. We see that the Son is also the sustainer of the cosmos. We read in the second part of chapter 3 that the Son sustains all things by the power of His Word. Is that not remarkable? In my opinion, I believe that if you do, 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 do some research on dark matter, the more we learn about the universe, the more we realize that we don't know about the universe, and the majority of the universe is comprised of something that just baffles scientists and physicists. Dark matter, everything that just holds everything together, in my opinion, dark matter is the word that was spoken when God said, let there be light and flung stars into an infinite space. Jesus holds all things together by the power of his word. The son is the suffering savior. We read at the third part of verse three that after the son provided purification for our sins. Is this not amazing? Jesus, with a sheer word, spoke the cosmos into existence and holds everything together by the power of that word. And yet, he traveled time and space to be born in a manger, to live among us. Universes and stars were shot out of his fingertips through his word, and yet to redeem us, to restore us back into a relationship with himself. He shed his blood on a brutal cross. He is the suffering Savior, but not only that, Jesus is the risen King. We see in verse 4, so Jesus became as much superior. This is when he, there were many things when Jesus became man that he gave up. Many things. He never gave up his sonship. Many things that he gave up when he became man to walk among us in this dusty planet to hunger and to thirst but when he was risen from the grave he glorified that body that he walked in so that it is a resurrected glorified body so that when we one day are in heaven we will see the nail scars in his hands and feet for our redemption. He is the risen king so that he became as much superior in reference to the resurrection to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Who is Jesus? Yeshua, who lived in first century Palestine. He's God's son. But not only that, Jesus, the second characteristic to know about Jesus, Jesus is God the son. 
Jesus is God's son. But not only that, Jesus is God the son. If you have Jehovah's Witness, knock on your door sometime. You'll recognize them through the white shirt and black tie, no doubt. But if you don't recognize them through that, you'll recognize them through this. Jesus is not God the Son, not a capital G God. He's a lower G God. He is a God, just like you can be a God, but not the God. No, Jesus is the God. 100% God. We serve a triune God, three and one, one and three. God is one. When we get to heaven, I believe we will see one. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three and one. God created the universe, three and one. This triune God is present all throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament. For example, written 700 B.C., let's look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Remember, Jesus is God's son. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And again in John chapter 1, verse 1 and 14, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God's Son, and Jesus is God the Son. We read in Titus chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, Jesus, God our Savior. And in Hebrews chapter 1, we see that God the Father commands the angels to worship Jesus. Verse 6. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Beautiful, isn't it? There were other times in Scripture when somebody, a man would try to worship an angel, and he would say, don't worship me. Or somebody would try to worship a man, and the man would say, don't worship me. Because we say that we are to have no other gods above God and to worship him alone. But right here, God the Father commands the angels to worship God the Son. I'll read it again. He says, let all God's angels worship him. Not only, that, not only did God the Father command the angels to worship God the Son, but God the Father calls Jesus God. Verse 7 and 9. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames with fire, but about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Did you hear the Father call the Son God? But about the Son, he says, the Father says, O oh God, your throne, O oh God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. What a statement. Therefore, God, capital G, your God, capital G, and God the Father reveals Jesus as creator, sustainer, and eternal. In verses 10 through 12 of Hebrews, the Father says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. He is the creator. 
They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. Christ is the Son. Christ is God. Christ is creator. Christ is sustainer. Christ is eternal. Third characteristic of God, the Son. Jesus has supremacy over all. There is not one inch at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean where nobody has yet explored where Jesus is not sovereign and supreme. There is not one inch in the uttermost parts of an infinitely expanding universe in which Jesus Christ is not sovereign and supreme. Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1 have such incredible similarities. Flip with me, if you would, to Colossians chapter 1, General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. And there's such similarities, again, between Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1. The scriptures have such a flow. Verse 15, we read, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. That doesn't mean that he was born first. The firstborn is is a title attributed. Uh, The same thing in Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus is referenced as the firstborn. If you remember, uh, Jacob and Esau had a bitter bitter rivalry about the status of of the rights of the firstborn. It is a position of authority. Jesus is the firstborn. He is supreme. He is preeminent over all of creation. Verse 16, for in Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We see that Jesus Christ is supreme over all of existence. We see that Jesus, the supremacy of Christ's existence, he is eternal. Try to wrap your minds around that. He has always been. He always will be. And in the context of his eternal existence, he is immutable. He has not changed. Not one ounce has he changed. Completely unchanging. Now that I'm 45, I cannot say that I'm unchanging. I am changing more and more every single month. Christ, the Ancient of Days, this eternal being has never changed. He remains steadfast in love, perfection, holiness, vigor, zeal, passion, righteousness, worthiness. Christ is supreme in his existence. And we should worship Christ because of his supremacy over all of providence. 
That means right now, at this moment, in the deepest parts of the Amazon, not one bird will fall off of a branch apart from his providential will. Somewhere in the desert in Africa, not one ant will be born, not one ant will hatch out of an egg apart from the providence of Christ. Not one hair on your head will fall out, not one hair will turn black or white, not one cuticle on your fingernail will grow apart from the providence of Christ. We worship the supremacy of Christ's wisdom. Not once, not once, not for a second has Christ ever been perplexed. Not once has he ever sought counsel from another. We worship him for the supremacy of his complete authority. Authority over nature. Authority over sickness. Authority over the cosmos. Authority over the political realm. Authority over who's elected president, who's king, how, how the debates go, the media, the entertainment world. He has complete authority over the financial world. He has complete authority over all things. He has complete authority. Everything is within his authority at present. We don't see everything under his authority, but we will. We worship him for his supremacy in justice. Sometimes we say, if Christ has all authority, then why did the girl in Saginaw disappear? If Christ has all authority, then why do the atrocities take place across the world? If Christ has complete authority, then why were 40 or so Christians beheaded in the Middle East by ISIS recently? If he has all authority, then why do these things happen? And the answer to that is because he is supreme over justice, and it's in a matter of time before he unleashes his justice upon the world. The first time Jesus came, he came as a meek infant in a manger, and he will come again. As certainly as he came the first time and split time in half B.C. A.D., he will come again. But he won't come as a meek baby. He will come as a conquering king. The first time Jesus came, he rode a, a donkey in humility into Jerusalem. He's coming again, and he'll be riding a stallion. The first time he came, he was covered in his own blood to redeem us from our sins. But when he returns, he will be covered in the blood of the nations as he establishes justice. Christ is supreme over all purity. Not once has Christ ever, ever, not for one millisecond has Christ ever been bitter. Not for one millisecond has Christ in all of his eternal days ever had a bad attitude. Not for one millisecond has he ever had a corrupted or lustful thought. He is supreme in his purity. Jesus Christ is supreme in his meekness. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not quench or snuff out a smoldering wick. Even when he was being led away to be slaughtered for the redemption of our sins, he didn't even raise his voice. But as a lamb who was led to its shearer, he was silent. In perfect meekness, in perfect gentleness, he is supreme in his love. His love is unfailing. Right now, his arms to you are open wide, and the nails on his hands prove it, that if you just turn to him with your whole heart, he will embrace you, and your sins will be gone, and you will be his child. He is perfect in his grace. 
He is supreme in his grace. We are saved by grace, not through works. We are saved by grace, and this grace is lavished. That's grace on top of grace on top of grace on top of grace. He pours more grace on our lives than we could ever exhaust in 10,000 of the most sinful lives ever lived. That is not a license to sin that brings us to our knees to live with passion and gratefulness and complete worship and to follow him with freedom. Christ is supreme in his submission to his father. When he walked this earth, he didn't so much as take a single step or utter a single word. He didn't even say, um, he went nowhere. He drank nothing. He ate nothing apart from his father's authority that he submitted to all the way up to the cross. He is supreme over all things. And Jesus said in relation to his throne that he is seated upon, and we read in verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 1, that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father until the Father makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. We said earlier that Christ came and that he's coming again. In relation to Christ's first coming, Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies from the Old Testament. There's 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. There were hundreds of prophecies written about Jesus in the Old Testament. Things as as simple as that he was going to be born in a manger. He would, he would move to Egypt and be called out of Egypt, that he would, he would, he would come out of, he would be raised in Nazareth, that uh, he would be betrayed, and even more specifically, that he would be betrayed by, for 30 pieces of silver. Even the means of his death, even before uh, the Roman form of execution through crucifixion would be invented some 700 years later, it was written about Christ in about... A thousand BC that all my hands and feet are pierced. I, my bones are, are out of their joints. All who see me mock, they, they divide my garments and cast lots for my clothing. My, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. That's Psalm 22 written a thousand BC. By the way, that Psalm began with the statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then you read what was going on in the mind of Christ. Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies about him when he came the first time. Statisticians uh, put the numbers to the paper and they begin cranking out the likelihood of one person accidentally fulfilling just eight of the hundreds of prophecies that Christ fulfilled. And the likelihood of that was one in 10 to the 17th power. That's a one with 17 zeros behind it. That is an astronomical likelihood putting that likelihood to a metaphor, to an image. Imagine filling the entire state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. I mean, from the panhandle all the way down to south Texas, west to east Texas, two feet deep throughout the entire state of Texas with silver dollars. And then you take one silver dollar, you put a black dot, you fly circularly over the state of Texas, you randomly throw out that silver dollar with a black dot, then you shuffle it all up, and then somebody else randomly flies, they skydive out, they're blindfolded, they land, they walk around a bit, they rummage through the silver dollars, they randomly pick up one, and the likelihood that they pick up the silver dollar with a black dot is one in 10 to the 17th power. And that's the likelihood of somebody fulfilling just eight of the hundreds of prophecies that Christ fulfilled about his first coming, one prophecy remains about Christ, and that is that he's coming again. He's coming again. And my question to you is this, are you ready? Have you surrendered your heart to him? He is absolutely 
worthy of your worship. He's absolutely worthy of your surrender. He's absolutely worthy of you seeking him and pursuing him and serving him. And if he comes tonight, are you ready? Are you his child? Have your sins been washed because they've been cleansed in the blood of the lamb? Are you ready? So, Reggie, if you would roll this video, and then we're just going to worship the lamb together. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? <laughs> My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Uh, I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king. That's my king. 
He is worthy. He is worthy. If you would like to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior right now, if you would like to surrender your heart to him, if you would like to be his, to be bought by the blood of the Lamb, to be cleansed, to be born again, heaven-bound, perfected in Christ, by the perfect sacrifice of Christ, we would like to lead you in that prayer right now if you would bow your heads. And we're going to pray along with you, everybody in an audible voice. God, I know that I have sinned. But thank you for paying for my sins on the cross. The perfect sacrifice to make me perfect in your sight. Jesus, I trust you as my Lord and Savior. Help me to grow now in this new life and live a life of worship back to you. Amen.